So, um, I just got home about three hours ago, so I don't have a talk prepared tonight. I thought we'd do questions. Um, so, your job on question night is to think of the best question you can think of. By best, I mean the most vital to you, like the one that has the most interest for you, or the most aliveness for you, or a question that is most um, speaks maybe to the edge of your practice, or the difficulty of your practice, or the deepest insight of your practice at this point, or um, some question you've always been wanting to ask but felt like you shouldn't ask. That can be a really good question. Um, and then, you, of course, you can always ask the hardest question you can think of, too, can be a really interesting question. You know, kind of stump the teacher, kind of, which is, it's, it has a long history in Buddhism, so you're, you're, you'll be right in the lineage. tradition, the questions about anger, reading the Dalai Lama, him talking about its extinguishing anger. Did, did you also, did he mention anything about the fact that he says he hasn't been able to? <laughs> which which he, he talks about, he, you know, he acknowledges. He said, oh, even when I'm really peaceful and my dreams are angry, which is really interesting because it, to me it says something about the place of anger in human consciousness it's it's there and often if it doesn't come out or if it's not if it's somehow not acknowledged it will come out in our unconscious at times and so I, I actually think it's a beautiful um, ideal to extinguish anger and it's very clear the suffering that comes when anger is acted out when anger is acted out either consciously or unconsciously, either way. That's very clear. Um, what the question is really about skillful means. How can we, what, what, what's the most skillful means to work with anger? That's a little more how I would talk about it rather than trying to extinguish it. Because that, that already sets up an almost impossible ideal. And for us, especially as Westerners, we already set up a lot of very difficult and maybe not accurate ideals around Buddhist practice and then berate ourselves for falling short over and over and over again. And so f personally, I think I see anger in anger is often talked about in the realm of what's called the um, 
destructive emotions or the there's another term it's not coming to me pardon I can't hear afflictive thank you yeah afflictive emotions I, I think it's actually much more skillful to just say emotions that emotions are have their pluses and minuses and the question is how do we work with our emotions given that we're emotional creatures, that we're creatures who have emotions very clearly. And we have and our emotions can be skillful or unskillful. Um, and then there's different levels to speak of. So just at the at the first level, let's just talk about anger, pure anger. You know, I'm pissed about something. It's at somebody. The question is how to work with it. How do we how do we um, how do we find our freedom without repressing emotion, denying emotion, or without acting on emotion? And in this case, anger. And this is the razor's edge in Dharma practice. This is the razor's edge in spiritual practice. And the reason why I think it's important not to think in terms of extinguishing um, is that it's that. Um, the skillful means that I know to extinguish is to allow without acting on it or repressing it. That actually learning how to sit in the fire of anger, learning to find our ground and our, our center right in the fire of anger allows it to self-liberate, to self-extinguish. And so to think of extinguishing means we have to get rid of something. But what if to extinguishing means that we allow the energies of it and we f make it fully conscious, which is what part of what mindfulness is about, being fully conscious. So fully conscious of the bodily experience of anger and the heart's experience of anger and the mind's experience of anger and see what happens as we stay present in that fire. And it, and it will feel like a fire. The, what's unskillful is we often think we need to act when we have that kind of intensity of emotion. And that's actually true some, often with so-called unafflictive emotions. Like love. We start feeling love and we think we have to act on it. Or we start feeling you know, joy and we think we have to act on it. We have not yet learned how to allow our emotions fully and let them um, mature. And so to sit in anger, to let it mature, is to let the anger, is to let really the, uh, what we is talked about as the afflictive, reactive um, 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 self and other belief burn up in that energy. And then, and then to use the clarity and strength that can come from that energy to respond appropriately to a situation. So, I'll talk to the Dalai Lama when I see him next time and see if I can straighten him out on this point. <laughs> Don't repeat that, please. Um, <laughs> but, um, but there is another level. There is a level that I'm pointing to of liberate. It's maybe the other way we can think about it. It's the difference between transcending 
our experience and the transmutation of experience. Um, part of part of the view here is that um, the anger itself is a distortion of something that's purer, and the purity is around the strength and the clarity and the steadfastness and the uh, forcefulness that's needed at times, both in spiritual life and in our daily life. There's an energy there that's needed. And so we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't want to cut off from that energy, deny it, because then what, what happens is you'll find people who are involved in spirituality who um, can't deal with any confrontation, directness, forcefulness, and, that, and those energies are needed both in the meditation practice itself and in our lives in this world. So that's a little bit my understanding. And, again, and some of this may reflect the difference between Eastern and Western understandings, culture, um, I, I don't want to say values, it's really about culture. If you're raised in a culture where... where um, no, I, I, I'm not going to go there. It's too, too, too general and it's not specific enough. So I won't go there. But it's an interesting contemplation about how do we work with the intensity of our emotions. Even I'll, I'll, I'll go on the other side a little bit about love, let's say. So one of the things that happens when people go on retreat, and this is generally true whether they have a, quote, good retreat or a bad retreat, which is their heart opens. And it's, it's true. It's just, it, just, it happens because it's inherent in who we are that there's a goodness to our heart that, and the qualities of love and compassion and joy um, and kindness are inherent. And as we sit, as we sit and walk in the bareness of the retreat experience, part of the alchemy of that form is that it begins to reveal itself. The heart reveals itself. And one of the difficulties for practitioners is often they'll start falling in love with people because it's a natural expression of the heart. But, but we haven't learned how to actually sit right in the middle of that um, aroma, that scent, that uh, juiciness. We think we have to act on it, just like we think we have to act on the anger. So it's a very interesting to, to start to see what, what is this um, capacity that we have as human beings for this intensity of feeling and then find our ground in it not being in the thrall of it, not being moved around by it necessarily. Being moved by it, yes, but not being moved around by it in the usual way that we react to our experience. My question is very similar. It's not necessarily about anger. For me, what I have been finding in my practice and in my life is that there is definitely... Um, a tendency to push away difficult feelings, for sure. But there's also a tendency to sort of grasp on and to, um, mm. yeah, 
to just grasp onto it. And it's hard to know where the how, where equanimity comes in. How to how to block that razor's edge? So, so watching the other side, right? Instead of pushing away, grasping on, grasping on to difficult feelings also. It's not easy. I mean, that, that's an important thing to begin to see, that it's not simple, it's not easy. Um, it takes re- repeated practice. One of the clashes of culture here Maybe our agenda and the way our culture moves like very quickly and that we're supposed to, you know, if we hear what's supposed to happen, then we're supposed to do it like that. Contemplative culture is based on a lifetime, if not lifetimes, <laughs> which is a little different than how we think about things. You know, we want things to change now. And I don't think that's a bad want. I, don't, I actually don't. I think that can really fuel our practice. But I think if we expect it to change, it'll be a certain level of suffering. So that's just first to give a bigger envelope to your question. Um, then the question is, well, how, how do we discern between pushing away and grasping on or opening to or grasping on or being with and grasping on? A, cert, a certain amount of that is only through trial and error. Trial and error. And then a, a certain... Um, I'll, I'll just say this. I mentioned... I don't know if I mentioned it here. There was a while back where I was having a very difficult time. About six weeks of fear. Maybe I didn't go into detail, but it was six weeks of fear. And, you know, I know how to practice with my experience pretty well. But it was not happening at my timeline, like that this should self-liberate, right? It was really staying with it, staying with it, staying with it, staying with it, going away at times as part of finding enough balance to stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. And I mean, you know, this was a very strong level of fear, you know, middle of the night fear, day fear. um, the kind of, um, you know how the mind will uh, ruminate on something that it's trying to solve. You know, and, and actually my mind doesn't do that much these days. That's not my dukkha. That's not my suffering so much because it just doesn't do it so But it was doing it a lot, you know, and I, <laughs> it just was doing it. It wasn't, wasn't stopping. It was like, oh, would you please be quiet, you know. <laughs> and... Um, um, you know, and all I can say is partly I have a deep faith in staying with it. And I also have a deep trust at this point that if I stay with it, no, and, and, and that I also know that I have to surrender to it. That it's not at my agenda. It's not on my timeline. That the understanding, the, um, which is really very key here, is going to come to liberate it. Um, and the liberation actually doesn't come even in the way I know it. 
That's how real the moment is. Maybe that's the best thing I'm saying right now. That actually, even with all our skillful means, it, it, it's, it's essential to get as present as possible, not just to overlay our past, how we did it before even. That's, that's how present we need to be. And that means really coming into the moment, really coming into present, using all the skillful means to support, but also then there's some not knowing that has to be there, that, that, that's inevitable in actually being in real time, in the living present. And I, it was interesting, part of what happened was, uh, I'll just say, let's see, there was somebody else involved and I was at some point actually feeling a lot of hatred for them. <laughs> and so I was staying with the hatred which was coming. And, um, and you know how, you, how, and I say this all the time, you know, if you really look at someone and see their suffering, it'll bring compassion, right? But you can't do that mechanically, exactly. It's, it's the principle is true. But we can't, this is where the Dharma always calls for us to come in, to be authentic. To be authentic. Because even though I know this, it wasn't working, right? But then at some point, this whole memory of this person came, and, and this person's suffering came to me, and the compassion came. I didn't do it. And we can't do it. This is what's, see, this is where our, we have such a doing culture. And actually, we don't do the Dharma. The da we give ourselves to the Dharma, and the Dharma does us. And so at a certain point, this memory came, and the compassion just came right next to it. It wasn't like I was trying to do it at all. And, then, and I stayed with that for a while. I stayed with the compassion. And then this peace came, and that was the end. And that was the end. And it wasn't... You know, it wasn't even in how I thought it would end. So what I'm trying to, and the reason why I'm, I'm actually saying so much about this is not that I'm a great yogi, but that we, we can't know how it's going to happen. That's what I think is really valuable. But we can trust the Dharma. And that builds over time. And so, if you're here for the first time, you've never heard anything like this, it sounds ridiculous, that makes sense. You, you can't, and this is where authenticity is so important in Buddhist practice. You know, Pema Chodron has that great book title, Start Where You Are. We always start right where we are. So is that... Okay, in the back. <laughs> If you could stand. Yeah. So I I think that's a, a really good compliment. I think anything that investigates. Reality is really helpful. Um, actually, I think there's many, many compliments to practice. It's like I think um, to sitting practice or Dharma practice. I actually don't make such a big discrimination between different 
skillful means. I, I think that's mostly how I think about it. What's needed and what's skillful. And so, you know, I think body practices, body movement is really an important practice. I think at different times in one's life, I think therapy is really very, very skillful. I think it's also important to realize that it's a different perspective, though. And by that, I mean there's some commonalities. You know, um, um, therapy seeks to relieve suffering. Buddhism is grounded in the idea, in the belief, in the understanding that there can be a freedom from suffering. Um, I think good therapy also understands that good therapy happens in real time. That even if we're talking about the past, which is part of the therapeutic process generally, that the transformation happens in real time. I also think, um, you know, there's actually there's a lot of therapies I don't know about, so I can't speak to, but I think good relational therapy also is very important. And, and uh, this, the principle in the Dharma is Sangha. Sangha is really important. It's a jewel. It's precious in the, in the Dharma. You know, when you were all chatting during the break and I'm ringing the bell and nobody's listening, <laughs> I mean, I thought oh, I should just let people chat all night and hang out. You know, that's a good thing. Um, it's good, good for the heart. It's good. It's good for the soul, even though there's no soul in Buddhism. Um, uh, um, so, uh, yeah, I think therapy is very, very helpful, and it somewhat depends on the skill of the therapist. But the principles of being aware, being kind, and the investigative principle. So, in, in in, in Buddhism, the, the awareness and the factor of investigation are two of the factors of enlightenment, and they're really important. You want to go ahead? You could stand up, it's easier for me to hear. Uh huh. Yeah. And sometimes I can let go of that, but sometimes the urge is really strong to investigate. Okay, good. So that's that's good. I'm glad you you got a little more precise here because what you're describing, everybody hear that? Basically, he said that um, um, partly based on his training, that it's easy for him to, insights come in verbal ways and thought, and that it's easy to follow that and keep going with it. And sometimes he can let go, but sometimes it's really compelling to continue. Um, there are different kinds of meditation practice. Um, some one mindfulness, and the kind of mindfulness we generally do here on a on a Sunday evening, is a, is an awareness practice. And it has a quality of investigation inherent in it, but it's not so much verbal or discursive or narrative investigation. It's more a felt sense investigation into the living reality, into the living presence that is here. Um, 
there are other um, um, forms of meditation that are equally valid and actually very important that are more active. Um, this the mindfulness itself is generally more receptive, um, but it's more active to uh, investigate or do inquiry or contemplate is really how it's talked about. And so um, if you practice a little more in the Ajahn Chah style, he will, he will literally say, well, contemplate. That's what we're doing here. Contemplate the three characteristics. Contemplate suffering. Contemplate how suffering happens. Contemplate when there's an absence of suffering in your experience. Contemplate um, um, the changing nature of your experience as you sit here, as you walk. Like even the walking meditation will be very different than the walking meditation we do, which much more emphasizes the felt sense, living, present experience to develop concentration and awareness. He'll say, contemplate impermanence while you're walking in the, in the movement of the foot. It'll arise naturally in the, in the way that we do it, but in the Ajahn Chah style, he's much more direct about that or contemplate the selfless nature of reality. We generally won't say that in the meditation, but if you do a long meditation retreat, that understanding will show itself quite naturally. So it's not, it's not a right or a wrong. That, that's the main point I want to make. It's really discerning what practice are you doing when. And then you can make a choice within that. And they're both really important and valuable to um, uh, develop, especially around emotions at times. It's really important to begin to, well, what's happening here? What is it? I'm caught in something. It's a certain amount we want to be able to sit with the direct experience, but also we want to understand, well, what is this? What, what's, and this is a whole other level of contemplation, which is, what's the identity that is, I'm taking my, who am I taking myself to be here in this intense emotion? Because generally, we're not taking ourselves to be our most mature self. Generally, we're not taking ourselves to, to be the freest part of us. It's a question coming in. <laughs> <laughs> so, wait, wait, I'm not quite done yet. Um, so, so part of the contemplation around emotions that's very helpful is to, especially because you see how certain emotions get stimulated over and over again, that points to a lack of, a lack of immediacy, a lack of freedom, a lack of, there's some uh, identity that we're wrapped around, that we're taking ourselves to be. And, we're, and I can assure you, we're not that identity. We may feel like this is me, and it does at that point. When I'm afraid, it feels like this is me, I'm afraid. It's, it's not to get rid of it, but it's very helpful to know that there's something else here for us to discover, to realize, and then to live from. Okay. I have a newcomer question. What kind of question? A newcomer question. Uh, 
Okay, it's a good question. When I say we don't do the Dharma, the Dharma does not to explain that. That's a good question. What I mean is we do our practice, we, um, we learn about the principles of Dharma, we see we're inspired by the Dharma, by, by the uh, beauty we see and the ideals that are expressed in the Dharma. Um, but it's not mechanical. We don't actually, we don't, it's not like, like to open the heart is not like opening a can of tuna. It doesn't work that way. It's not like, okay, just because we see that having an open heart is a good thing, that we can do that. But what we can do is stay, learn how to stay present with a closed heart and, a, and the Dharma will reveal itself then. What do I mean by dharma? Okay, so that's that's good. What I mean by dharma, so dharma, the word dharma um, is translated a few different ways. It's the law, the natural law, the organic law of the way things are. It's also the truth, the truth of the way things are. So I think in terms of the truth, the truth of who we are will reveal itself to us naturally. So that's what I mean by the dharma will do us. Um, the truth, even even as we see the ideals and we resonate with the ideals of love and compassion and kindness and interconnectedness, we respond because it's already here. It's already within us. It may not be fully mature or fully unveiled that there's obscurations, there's um, identifications, there's habit, there's conditioning that actually blocks the real fruition of who and what we are. And so, so sometimes people try to, because we see the ideal and we love the ideal, then we try to make ourselves into the ideal. And so I'm trying to undercut that a little bit. I'm trying to um, suggest that that's not the, the most skillful way to practice, that the way to practice is to cultivate the principles of contemplation, of, uh, excuse me, the principles of yeah, contemplation, which is concentration, awareness, and kindness to the present moment's experience, whatever that experience is. And then the reality that's here, the Dharma, the truth that's already here, will begin to reveal itself. And so there's some other Dharma language I could use here that also helps, which is samsara and nirvana are not separate. Samsara is the world of suffering. Nirvana is the world of freedom. They're not separate. Nirvana is not down the block. You know, it's not in Tibet. It's right here. It's actually right here, right where you sit. And of course, you all already know that the world of suffering is right where you sit, right? And everybody's got that. So, so to start to see that the transformation or transmutation is to learn how to get present within the world of suffering, within the world of difficulty, and then to actually learn how to be present, awake, in the world of freedom also. Okay? Okay. Let's see. Well, we're getting a lot of questions tonight. Let's go over here. Um, I don't think you explained. Um, you were speaking about 
about anger, and um, I feel like I have more of a problem with annoyance, um, <laughs> small, small things, but the feeling mm-hmm. is very strong and very negative, yeah. and very annoying. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so you're there's not even a real there's something not real about it. So, so the question's about annoyance, which is on the continuum of anger, right? right? You know, annoyance, irritation, frustration, pissed off, I hate this person, blah, 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 blah. you know, it's... So, um, one, one important principle here about working with emotions is that um, and this is so this brings in the the question of attachment attachments described in two ways in Buddhism grasping at something pushing away something those are both forms of attachment grasping and pushing away grasping and pushing away are both forms of attachment so if you see that you're annoyed with your annoyance that's where you want to start which is you're aversive to your annoyance <coughs> So you're not going to learn much about annoyance as long as you're aversive to it. The first step, starting where you are, means to start to open to your annoyance. Let it flower a little bit. See what happens if you really allow the annoyance. (laughs) For those of you who can't see, she's getting a little red and smiling. So... Right behind you. You had your hand up. Behind you. There we go. Yeah. I was going to ask you about, I went on my first extended retreat in June. Yes. I did experience heart opening and um, a lot of piercing for, I don't know, a week, 10 days. And then I had to let it go. It was going, so I had to let it go. Mm -hmm. And now my daily practice is a lot more challenging for me. I'm having a hard time finding my way with it after that experience. Okay. So this is a good question here, comment, which is that going on a, um, a retreat, having the heart open quite a bit, and then, um, and then having a rubber band effect, right? The heart closes also. Um, it's really important to know how common that is, how normal that is. How, many, how much of your life have you spent not on retreat? Right. <laughs> okay. Or not even. How long have you been involved with the Dharma? Five years. Five years. Okay, it's a good start. Um, pardon? Okay. Thank you. Um, part of what um, might be skillful here is to notice if there's some longing for that, wanting it, grief or judgment that it's not here. So it means really paying attention to what is here now. And that, again, it's starting where you are, exactly where you are, and, and, and allowing where you are, paying particular attention to any judgment about where you are, whether it's judgment about annoyance or judgment about not having your heart open. Um, and then also to say it's really an art, both Entering retreat is an art, which I think you saw. Leaving and letting go of retreat is an art too, because it won't be the same, won't generally. And it, it, it's, 
again, and this is where the big picture is very helpful. And by, again, remember what I said at the beginning, that contemplative life is thought of in terms of a lifetime or lifetimes. Like if you let your mind get really big and think in terms of lifetimes, it gives us a little more room to grow. And that's actually, at least archetypally, that's how it's talked about in Buddhism. That the Buddha's awakening is talked about in terms of the, 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 the scriptures have detailed descriptions of his many lifetimes of purifying the heart and mind, clarifying the heart and mind. And at least personally for me, even just as an archetype, I find that very helpful. Like even to just imagine that that might be true. I don't, I don't know what happens. I don't, I don't claim to know. We'll see soon enough, right? That's more my attitude. But, but when I think of it in, arch, in archetypal terms, that's a really interesting way that human beings have thought about reality for a long time and still do. You know, we're a culture, we're probably in a minority actually. And then you may notice if there's also, there may be certain kind of so-called negative emotions that you might not be allowing about the fact that it's not the same. Being pissed off about it. Being mad at the Dharma about it. Things like that. And this is why I, I think that it's really important to open to the motions because that happens. That's actually really part of practice. Um, there's the idealization and if there's idealization there will be disillusionment. And disillusionment is not a bad thing in Buddhist practice, right? It's about not being caught in illusion. And so that's part of the process of practice, is the idealization and disillusionment. And the disillusionment doesn't mean, oh, we end up back where we were. No, it ends up somewhere else we don't know yet. Is that helpful at all? It's helpful. I, I think for me, the idea of sitting for 20 or 30 minutes compared to being on a five-day retreat, it's just really hard for me to sit and do it now. So, so let's talk about this. So that's a really good because what do you expect? What do you want to happen in 20 or 30 minutes? What would you like if it was ideal? Let's, come on, let's go for it. <laughs> I think to be in touch with my, my felt sense. Uh-huh. Does that happen? Sort of. I mean, there's a lot of constriction when I go to sit down. So you a lot of shoulds and rights and things like that, which I've been working with. Good. I think, um, so partly it means sitting with the constriction. And there may be some aversion to the constriction. Um, the other thing to think about is personally for daily life practice I often do what I call bump on a log practice I just sit there whatever happens is fine and whatever happens means my mind may go for 20 or 30 minutes I may space out whatever happens it's okay and, and I find that that attitude 
actually allows for a lot to happen. A lot of not just not just the spacing out, which happens sometimes. Go ahead. Okay, good. Okay, okay. Okay, so now in front. I'm confused about the, the notion like the uh, St. Francis prayer where, where it, it says that by self-forgetting we find. Pardon? By self-forgetting we find. Mm-hmm. Or you know, this language of bondage of self. There's a lot of uh, teachings that we need to get away from our egos and our sense of self in order to find truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm having trouble reconciling that right now with the idea of sitting in the fire of our emotions, which can oftentimes just be ego-driven. Um, and so how do we reconcile this notion? So the question about, um, there's a lot of teachings about um, letting go of the ego or self, and then how, how, what does that mean in terms of sitting in the fire of our emotions? It's all in the service of letting go of our self. You know, we think we are that emotion when it's intense. We actually believe this is me and this is what I'm having and now I'm going to um, act on this. And so, or, you know, this is, this is the truth. And it's, it's a relative truth. And it's important to really, really respect relative truth. Really important to respect relative truth without but understanding that it's relative truth. There's a teaching in Buddhism of the two truths, not the four noble truths, but the two truths, relative and ultimate truth. And um, if, if we deny relative truth, it's a misunderstanding of the teachings. That the actual teaching of relative and ultimate truth is that they're both equally true. So there's ultimate truth that there's no that's that there isn't actually a self in the way we conceive of it. But is Eugene sitting here and talking and relating and gonna go to Eugene's car? It's a relative truth that there's a Eugene, even though ultimately there's not, there's not a Eugene in the way we conceptualize Eugene. The way we believe, you know, that we're a fixed entity in time that is here and here and then we die. That may not be the ultimate truth. But relatively, it's, there's a certain truth to it. And that's why is that, so, so, so what the the pitfall if we is that we'll we'll deny the relative because we're afraid of it because we think we can't tolerate it and we haven't and many, often we haven't learned the skills to find our ground and our center and our presence in the middle of the relative and so we seek Spiritual practice often as a way to get away from being right here on the ground in human life. And the, the real uh, fruit of spiritual practice is that we can actually be here. We can really be here. That there's something beautiful about being here. That there's something beautiful about human beings. Something quite unique about human beings.
quite amazing this consciousness that somehow we have this capacity for realization is can this is considered the optimal realm this human realm and so this you know i can keep going it's precious human birth that the dharma points to over and over again is right here in the relative that the ultimate is found in the relative and that's why sitting with our emotions can lead to the ultimate. Let's go right here. It's a, a, a bit of a different topic, but you know, I've been practicing mindfulness as I go through my day, and I'm finding that there's one area that I really have a hard time bringing it into, and that's food. Food. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, even though it's obviously a very bodily thing, it's I'm the least mindful, I'm the least in my body. It's and I just and, and I don't know that I've read a lot about you know, Dharma and food. So I don't know if that's too big a topic or No, it's 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 uh, well I'll speak a little more to the principle, which is one of the I th- always think there are two edges in practice. There's the most difficult place and then there's the freest place. And they're both important to pay attention to. Really helpful not to just pay attention to one, but to pay attention to both. Like what's the most difficult area for you in practice? Where is it most difficult for you to be present, to be awake, to be conscious, to be kind? And where, is, where are you the freest? What supports your freedom? Both are important. So you're pointing to an area for you that's difficult. So then that area becomes, um, I, in, in terms over a life of practice, one learns how to highlight an area. And so you're recognizing it, that's the first step. Then the second step is to think about what kind of skillful means might be most helpful to start to illuminate it. First we highlight it, then we want to illuminate it. We want to see how can we bring more awareness there. What would that mean? Where would we start? You know, for you it might start before you ever even touched the food, right? Just the impulse, just to say, okay, I'm going to sit with the impulse for one minute, 30 seconds. And I'm quite serious about using increments of time that are workable. If we give an over-dealized thing like, oh, for a week I'm just going to be present all the time around food, that's harder to do. See if you can find, um, uh, to, to contemplate, and this is where the investigative factor becomes very important, to really think about well, what are the, what are the, um, what are the um, forces in play for you around this, in this area. Um, how can you view it, what will help you view it with both wisdom and compassion, and then bring those principles into play. And then to look for outside resources, books, teachers, etc., etc. Janine Roth writes really well about food and consciousness. I think she wrote a book called Feeding the Hungry Heart. So there's a resource. Janine Roth. I believe that's her name. Yeah, Janine Roth. And there's some tapes and things like that also. So we're out of time. I'm sorry we couldn't get to everybody. Let's sit for a minute before we end.
May our practice here, may the merit of our practice here this evening, may we offer it freely. May it go out in every direction, touching beings in this world and every world. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, from the worldly suffering, war, division, racism, hatred, ignorance, confusion, from the personal suffering, our own personal fears, confusions, misunderstandings. May all beings be free from suffering. May we all awaken. May we awaken to the great blessings of the Dharma the great gifts of wisdom, compassion, kindness, awareness, love. May we awaken to our true nature, our Buddha nature. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.